I finally made it back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn back there this morning. But I didn't make it far. <laughs> made it back, but I didn't make it far. <clears throat> I've entitled this message, and you'll find out as we go through this, I never even make it to the point where I named it this. I named this, these next two messages is Christ's Constraining Love. This will be part one, Christ's Constraining Love. And my intention was to get down through verse 16 and primarily dealing with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. But I got so caught up in verses 12 and 13 that I never even made it down to verse 14. I'm going to just give you one thought to think about at the end of this message concerning verse 14, and then we'll look at uh, those verses, 14, 15, 16 together, and then we'll finish this thing up with verses 17 through 21, uh, a message that uh, you're all too familiar with. I'm, I'm going to rewrite it completely, but do you really want to know the gospel on this work of redemption that Christ accomplished by his obedience unto death. I pray the Lord would be pleased to bless us this morning uh, through his word, that he would comfort and encourage his children because that's what this is about, that if there's any that are sitting among us that have not believed the gospel, that he'd be pleased to reveal himself to them, any that might run upon these messages in their various forms across the Internet, if any of his sheep are there, that he'll be pleased to use it to call them to true faith and true repentance. Christ constraining love. Well, that's something to think about, isn't it? The love of Christ constrains us. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ, he declared to those Jews who were outraged at him because he made such a dreadful error. He healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And it was the Sabbath day. Huh? And they were outraged. And yet our Lord looked to them and he told them, now listen to this. Now we've always emphasized this, but I want to emphasize another part of this verse this morning. He told those that were outraged at him over what he had done. They should have been pleased that a man was healed. He tells them, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. That's what this miracle testified. This is indeed the Son of God. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men. Now listen to this. But I know you. Think about this. I know you. That you have not the love of God in you. Let me read it to you in a literal translation of this verse. But I have known you. I have known you. That the love of God you have not in yourselves. What an indictment by our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what these Jews were? That he says this to? These aren't men and women at some later point in time going to come to know him, Kenny. These are reprobates. These are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. These Jews, think about that, they were moral. They were religious. They were sincere. And in their opinion, 
their opinion. What were they? They were defenders of the law. How do I know that? Therefore the Jews which sought to kill him, this is in that same passage, because he not only had broken the Sabbath day, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Yet according to Christ, who is God, and being God knew all things, he declared to them, you have not the love of God in you. You think about what that means. You have not the love of God in you. You know what that means? It means any sinner, no matter how moral or sincere or dedicated or religious or loving or kind or compassionate they might be, if they do not have the love of God, whatever this love of God is in them, what are they? They're lost. You hear me? They're lost. That being the case, what do we need to do? I need to ask myself, and you need to ask yourself what? It's an important question. Do I have the love of Christ in me? Do I have the love of God in me? The opposite, the flip side of it is what? I'll try to make this as plain as I can, as love of God as clear to you as I can in the next two messages that I'm going to preach to you. But let me just simply state right here, what is the love of God? Here, here ends love. This is the love of God. Here ends love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son the propitiation for our sin. That's the love of God. And I'm going to tell you what, the only ones who have been taught of God that their sins have been propitiated, God has been reconciled to them, you know what they do? They love him who sent him. Only them. It's impossible for one who has not the love of God to love him because what? They don't think they need him. They think there's some other way. That's what's the problem with the Jews. They, they searched the scriptures. For, in the searching of the scriptures, they thought what? I got life. But they miss what the scriptures always point to. They point to Christ. I've said this multiple times as we've been going through chapter 4 and now chapter 5. A lot of people seem to think, particularly of chapter 5, you know what they think this is talking about? It's talking about regeneration. They get hung up on one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A man accused our dear brother in Christ, Bill Parker, said that he, and I, you'd have to include me and Scott Price and Sonny Hernandez and any, uh, Gary Shepard and, and uh, Tim James, every gospel preacher, true gospel preacher that I know, he said that Bill was a false preacher because he did not dogmatically stand for and believe and preach monergistic, progressive sanctification. <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck's that? That's, that's a contradiction, even the inclusion of those together. Monergistic means what? 
God didn't see. I know what the guy dude meant by that. It, it, to me, it comes back to Phariseeism is what it comes back to. Remember the parable of the, uh, the, uh, the Lazarus and the, 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 the Pharisee? The, the, no. The, the rich man, no, not the rich man and the Pharisee. The publican and the Pharisee. I get it right. Remember what that Pharisee said when he stood and boasted in the, in the, in the temple? He said, I thank God. In other words, what's he done? That's monergistic, progressive sanctification. I thank God that I'm not a murderer, I'm not a liar, and I'm not a thief. I'm not like this man. I tithe everything that I got. I fast twice a week. What is that? That's monergistic, progressive sanctification. In other words, I'm a better man because God's working this thing out in me. Listen, not by works of righteousness which we've done ever. You didn't do anything to get yourself into the kingdom of God. And listen to me, I don't care what anybody says. You cannot, as born of God, do anything to get yourself out of the kingdom of God. People say, how dare you say that? I say, how dare you imply something different? Salvation is exclusively by the grace of God through Christ alone, by God-given faith alone, is we rest in and rely upon a righteousness we have no part in producing, a righteousness we have no part in maintaining, one produced for us, in our name, in our nature, through the obedience unto death, the bloody sacrifice, the entirety of his person and work at Calvary. In reality, you know what this whole chapter sets forth? 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Reconciliation. That's what it's about. The whole chapter is about God reconciling sinners. Meaning what? On what basis or on what ground did God reconcile sinners to himself and reconcile himself to sinners? How did he do that? And you keep that in the back of your mind as we begin to look at this section this morning. Look at verse 12. He says, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. I read that this week. I think that's what got me hung up so much as I... As I got to reading that statement that Paul wrote under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, I'm like, what's he mean by this? What's he talking about? And to me, you know what this, this is a, a, this verse here, verse 12, it looks back to the way Paul began this whole section back over. Look over at chapter 4. Here's how he started. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. What is it? He tells us in chapter 5, we'll get there in about three, three or four Sundays, what ministry has he received? The ministry of reconciliation. That's the ministry he's received, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He says, we have received this ministry as we have received mercy. What? We don't faint. We continue to preach. I don't care what they do to me. What? I'm going to preach this ministry of reconciliation. We've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. What? He's quit talking about us. About our righteousness. Live like I live. Paul never said live like me. 
What did he say? Look to Christ. Not walking in craftiness, not trying to trick you and make you think if you'll follow this example that I'm setting for you, you'll get there. Nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, you know what vindicated Paul? The message that he preached. What vindicates every one of us? The message we believe, stand for, and declare. See, Paul, you think of it, Paul had been separated and called by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he had faithfully fulfilled his responsibility, dogmatically and without compromise, preaching the gospel to these people at Corinth. Everywhere he went, he preached the same message, Kenny, the same gospel. Now, unlike the Judaizers, which is what he's dealing with here, these false teachers, these false apostles, who came in everywhere Paul had preached, they always came in behind him. After, and here's the thing. They never came while he was there. I think they were afraid of Paul. That's what they were. They knew they couldn't match up with what the power and strength and the testimony that he had of this man. So they'd always wait till he was gone. And when they came in, he says, I, I don't have to commend myself to you like they do. See, they, these Corinthians, they knew Paul. He'd been there. He brought the gospel there. And they knew the message Paul had preached to them. How do we know that? Here, here we go. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Huh? He said, I already preached it. Which also, what? You, you received. So this letter comes after the fact, all. They've already heard it. They've already believed it. He said, when you, you take your stand. Where? In this gospel. By which, hold on, wait. By which also you're saved. What? By what this gospel sets forth. If you keep in memory what I have preached, he keeps reference back, well, I've preached this to you. And if I come back again, what am I going to do? I'm going to preach the same thing to you. Over and over and over and over again. And he says, for I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was raised, he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul opened this second epistle that we're reading and studying from. He opened it this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. See, it was because of the gospel message that Paul and all God's redeemed, they suffer persecution and trial and tribulation. That's all. 
Christ told his apostles. Paul wasn't there, but I guarantee you when our Lord met with Paul for three years on the backside of the desert after his conversion, he, he made it clear to Paul because he told Ananias, go show him what great things he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And I guarantee you Christ ensured him, Paul, this thing's going to bring you trouble. I'll never forget, as long as I live, the last time when Henry came to Heiko that time, and we carried Henry, me and Pam, and Jeremy was about Zoe's age, and Matt was about three. Maybe a little younger than that. Matt was a little bitty thing. And we were at the old Holiday Inn down here. And, you know, they were just flipping around on the floor like kids do, you know. And, and Henry picked them both up and had one on one knee and one on the other. And he looked at me and Pam and he said, I've got something I need to talk to y'all about that's extremely important. And I mean, I was, I was just, I was distraught that Henry was about to leave. I had fallen so deeply in love with him because he was my father in the faith. And he looked at us and he said, look, he said, I'm telling you, he said, y'all got a problem. He said, y'all, <laughs> y'all got a problem. And I said, what? He said, I give you about two to three weeks, and these people are going to ask you to leave. He said, if you're faithful to this message and you will not compromise what you've heard and come to believe, he said, they're not going to stand for it. And I remember looking at him and I told him, I said, oh, no, Henry, these people love me, and they want to hear this and everything. And he, he looked up and he said, and he, and his, I can still hear his voice, I hope you're right. I don't think you are. He was right. <laughs> wasn't he? <laughs> it blew up like an atomic bomb. And it wasn't over personalities. People did like me. I, I mean, I might be mistaken. People liked me back out that church. They hated what was being preached for the most part. Thankfully, some did love it and respect it and appreciate it and took great comfort in it. Christ told them, listen to you, these things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. Where, where does the believer find peace? In Christ. In the world, now think of, take this to heart. This wasn't just to these apostles. In the world, you shall have peace. Tribulation. That word tribulation means pressure. You're going to be under the pressure. Be a good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. Christ told them and us, Blessed are you when men shall revile you. Now think of it, blessed. We don't think about being blessed when you're going through what he's about to say. Blessed, eternally blessed are you when men shall persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Why? The same thing. The same message. The same hope. These false apostles, and that's the only way I know to put it, these, these false apostles, they, they claimed that their message 
falsely claim, I think I need to change it. They falsely claim that their message and Paul's message was the same message. If you don't believe that, we know it to be so because over in Galatia, Paul says, if I'm preaching the same thing, at their, if I'm preaching circumcision like they're preaching circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Because he said, if I'm preaching circumcision, he says, the offense of the cross is gone. But here's the thing. The difference between the two, between these false apostles and this true apostle of God, is that Paul suffered for the gospel that he preached. Exactly like our Lord had told him and us. And these false apostles, you know what? They didn't suffer anything. Not at all. According to Paul's words in our text, their desire, these false apostles' desire, was to glory in appearance and not in heart. You think about it. These false apostles gloried in their outward appearance, in their learning, in their eloquence, and in the applause they received from the people that heard them. Because people were caught up with them and their ability. Oh, I've never heard a man speak like that. How did Paul, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the greatest apostle that ever lived, he said, when I came to you at Corinth, how did I come? Came in weakness and in trembling. Can you envision that? I can. I'll tell you what. I've said, I don't know if I've told you this before. If you, I'm grateful this pulpit's as big as it is. Every time I stand in this place, any of you men that have stood in a pulpit and preached God's gospel, I am nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. My legs and feet, I'm like a dancing man behind this pulpit. I've just learned over 36 years of doing it that I can keep my upper part of my body stationary. But I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm nervous. This is, this is, this is, this is awe-inspiring to have to do this. To know what I am and stand before other sinners just like me and tell us these truths. But they, they were like, heap it on me. Tell me how good I am. Tell me how wonderful of a speaker I am. I tell you what, I've, I've said this to my wife and I'll continue to say, I, just about every Sunday I come out of this pulpit, I feel like I have failed my God. And it brought contempt upon his name for what I've said. I tell you, last Sunday morning, that, that message I preached last Sunday morning was the shortest message I've preached in the, in the 30, in the, since we've been recording messages in 2008. It was 28 minutes and 36 seconds. I felt like I preached an hour and a half. All. I kept looking at that clock back on that wall, and I was thinking, in my mind, I was thinking the whole time I was preaching, is this ever going to end? And when I got through, I looked up at the clock, and it was 15 till the hour. And I'm like, how'd that happen? And I walked outside, and I sat out in the truck, and I almost cried. I thought, boy, that was, that was awful. But I tell you what, when I, when I go out and I feel pretty good about it, them's the ones that's awful. shouldn't have preached them because there's it, too much of me in it, too much of my personality in it. kind of sounds like what our Lord said of those Pharisees during his earthly ministry. 
All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not after you do not ye after their works. For they say and they do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulder, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But here we go. But all their works, how many of them? All their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garment. And they love the uppermost parts of the room and the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. And to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. That Paul and all God's redeemed glory in one thing. We glory in Christ. That's all we have. Paul wrote to these same Corinthians in the first epistle, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. According as it is written, he that glorieth. If he's all of it, where else can you glory? He that glorieth, let him glory where? Let him glory in the Lord. I, when, I, when I read that verse, I always think about Isaiah. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Listen carefully to Paul's words at the last part of this verse. That you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not, not in heart. Here's a literal translation. But we are giving you an occasion, or we are giving occasion to you of glorifying in our behalf. In other words, what we preach. That you may have something in reference to those glorifying in face and not in heart. So in other words, you know what these words mean? Paul's telling them the gospel he preached is what vindicates us. That's it. Just the gospel we preach. And you know what? That same gospel that vindicated Paul, it exposes these false prophets and the false gospel they preach. The only thing it'll do, it's the gospel. Can't, can't point them out by their, by their outward character and conduct. The only thing that distinguishes and shows them to be false teachers is what? Their message has to be exposed. Look at verse the next verse. He says, for whether we be beside ourselves, it's to God. Or whether we be sober, it's for your cause. I thought a long time before I wrote this statement down, but to me it's, it's so important. The Apostle Paul, just like all the prophets and all the other apostles, Wendy, they were consumed with the gospel. You hear me? They were consumed with it. It was their calling. It was their privilege. And it was their responsibility. But here's the thing. I didn't put this in my note, but I'm going to share it with you anyhow. It's our privilege. It's our calling. And it's our responsibility too. Shame on us for not being consumed with the gospel. Paul told those at Corinth, we read it this morning, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Don't you want to glorify and honor Christ? 
Every time I stand in this pulpit, I think, oh, to glorify and honor and point men to him. Every time I stand up here, I always think about it. Ah, if I be lifted up, who, who Christ is lifted up. I'll draw all to me. Only him. Magnify him in his person and his work. Paul told them and us, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me. Judgment is unto me if I do what? If I preach not the gospel. Paul told those at Galatia as well as all believers in every generation, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to his language. Glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which this world... It's crucified to me. It's dead to me. And I'm dead to this world. When the Spirit moved Paul to use the Greek word in our text, we be beside ourselves. This is interesting. You know, one, one word, we be beside ourselves. Four English words. We be beside ourselves. You know, four English words. One Greek word. And you know what it means, the Greek word? It means out of one's mind. To be insane. And when he used that word under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know what he was doing? He was answering the charge that was made against him in the gospel message he proclaimed. And Paul stood, I, I read this this week, when he stood before Festus to defend himself and his ministry, before those false charges that were brought against him by those Jews. Festus accused him. You know what he accused him of? You're out of your mind, Paul. Listen to you. And as he thus spoke of him for himself, because, you know, the Jews stood up and gave their false witness against him. And then Festus looked to him and said, It's your turn, Paul. Paul stood up and it says, And as he spake thus for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning, much learning, doth make thee mad. And that word, thee mad, means insane. It's made you insane. But see, here's the thing. To Festus, as well as every unregenerate mind, the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace in Christ, which declares His blood and His righteousness alone is the only hope, ground, and cause of salvation, it sounds like madness. It does. The natural man, Paul said, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them for what? They're spiritually discerned. Isn't that exactly what the Jews accused our Lord Jesus Christ of? His message. In John chapter 10, after he had spoken those wonderful words concerning the shepherd and the sheep, and him laying down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 21, when they heard him speak, it says, and many of them says, he hath a devil. And is mad. Why do you hear him? Why do you listen to him? <laughs> and that word that's translated is mad. Think about that. They accuse the Lord of glory of being out of his mind means one who so speaks 
that he seems to be not in his right mind. This is what Paul stated of himself as well as all of God's elect, those born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, since we're sons of God, the world knows us not. That word knows means loves us not. Why? Because it knew him not. He said, marvel, this is John, the loving apostle that wrote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He says, if the world hates you, and that means to pursue with bitter hatred. If the world hates you, he said, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Our Lord Jesus Christ had taught John and the apostles. He says, if the world hates you, you know what? That it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, in other words, if you belonged in this place, what would the world do? The world would love you. But because you are not of the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world does what? Hate you. That'll make us examine ourselves right there. I tell you what, James had got it right. Friendship with the world, enmity against God, bitter hatred against God. Now again, that doesn't mean go out and break every friendship that you've got. But I'm going to tell you what, if you can enter into religious fellowship and allow people that do not believe and know and love this same God that you know and love, and allow them to think that they are okay, you don't know this God. Is that clear enough? If you can compromise God's glory seen in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and allow people to believe that you just have a little different doctrinal position with Him, you do not know the God of the Scriptures. And that's why the world loves you. That's why they can take you in their arms and embrace you. Or you know what, your kids will be going to church with them, going to parties with them, doing everything with them. And before you know it, you, you can claim whatever you want. They're gone, and more than likely at some point in time, you'll walk away from it. It's a tragic thing. You see a lot. You spend, you spend 30, 40 years preaching to people. You see people come, you see people go. And the thing that I always think about, he made it clear, the same apostle made it clear, they're not part of us. They went out from us to make manifest that they were not part of us because if they were part of us, what would they have done? They'd remain right here with us. Have you experienced that, what our Lord talks about? If, if you were of the world, the world would love you home. Because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world does what? Hate you. Have you experienced that from your friends? From your family? I know we've all experienced it somewhat from foes, but what about from friends and family, people that are on flesh and blood? Why, why does the world hate us? Why? Because we dress different than them. No, I'm dressed just like you, anybody else, you too. Same reason they hated our Lord. What did they hate him for? The words which he spoke, the doctrine that he declared. Paul told them that everything he had endured for the gospel's sake, literally for Christ's sake, 
He considered it in this light. It's to God. It's for God's glory. In other words, where, where, wherefore whatsoever you eat or whatsoever you drink or whatsoever you do, that encompasses everything, that whatsoever you do, do all of it to what? To the glory of God. See, Paul wasn't concerned about his reputation and he wasn't hurt, worried about the condemnation men would cast upon him over what they considered madness. See, and Paul knew that the gospel that he preached, the gospel that he declared, glorifies God in every attribute of his character as both a just God and a Savior, glorifies and honors and magnifies the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and excludes all boasting in human flesh. He says, for you see your calling brethren. He's saying Corinthians. You see your calling brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God's chosen what? The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen and things which are not. To bring to naught things that are. Why? Here, that no flesh should glory in his sight. But he didn't stop there. He says, whether we be sober. And that, that word, whether we be sober, you know what it means? It means I'm in my right mind. I'm in my right mind. He try to give you a literal translation of this verse. He says, if we are in our right minds, it's, it's for your good. For your benefit. It's so simple to understand. The, the glory of God and the good of the church were what consumed and concerned the apostles and all that preach and believe the gospel. Concerned about one thing, his church. I, 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 I couldn't help but think about, you know, he loved the people at Corinth. He loved those at Ephesus too. He was about to depart from Ephesus and he called all the elders together. And listen to his words. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when, he had come to, when they had come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And I, I kept back nothing profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God, even faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing what things shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. In other words, everywhere you go, Paul, what's going to happen? Problems and difficulties. <laughs> Listen, Paul, this is, this is faith. The just shall live by faith. But none of these things move me. None of these things move me. Listen to this. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry. That, that word ministry means the ministration which I have received of the Lord Jesus Christ this is what he lived and died for, to testify the gospel 
of the grace of God. That's us. We want to consign it to these guys. We are part of a gospel ministry. Every one of us. You tell me Paul didn't love those people at Corinth. You tell me he didn't love these guys at Ephesus and these women. Oh, that you and I might know and understand and feel a great, unbreakable, God-like love for all those that are of like precious faith. Listen to you. I think I heard Bill say it. We were back out yonder at that old church. We, the first, one of the first evidences that we pass from death into life is what? Love for the brethren. We know we have passed from death unto life in that we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother. You hear that? He that loveth not his brother. Where do they abide? They abide. They are continuing where? In spiritual death. And I tell you what. The absence of this love Toward the bread shows one to be what? Yet dead in trespasses and sins, an enemy in their mind by wicked words. Because he goes on, he said, Whosoever therefore hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he hath laid down his life for us, and what should we do for our brethren? We ought to lay down our life for our brethren. We get together one time a week. Just one. I guarantee there's a lot of people claim to believe the gospel. They went way out of their way to be together with their friends and family on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Their earthly family. Have no desire to be with the family of God. Folks, something is wrong with this picture. You can claim it and name it all you want. We love the gospel. We love those that love the gospel. And we get over our little petty indifferences. And I tell you, you if, if everybody in here hated me, you couldn't keep me away from the gospel if I knew it was being preached somewhere. Huh? That's just true. But that brings me to this last verse I, that I derived the title from, for the love of Christ constrains us. Let me say one thing, and I'll quit this morning. We'll come back, we'll look at this verse and the rest of them. What holds God's children together is one. What, what keeps us together? Oh, why Solomon said it best. He brought me to the banqueting house. And his banner over me is love. Now you think about it. What does that mean? His banner over me. We're all God's children. We're all members of his family. We're all included in his love. We're all under his. That, that word banner there means an ensign. It's like back in, if you ever watched any of them old pictures, you know, where they had the different groups. Each group of family, they had a different flag that they fought under. I guess our banner would be the red stars and stripes. It'd be our banner. And it meant those under that banner, what are they? They're united as one. That's why we're called the United States of America. We ain't very united anymore. But that's why they named it that. We're all together as one. 
And he says the banner over the church of God is what? The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, which means what? All of them are loved by Christ equally, all those that God the Father chose, gave to the Son an everlasting covenant of grace, all those Christ redeemed by His obedience unto death, they're equally loved, equally saved, equally qualified, equally fit, and equally included in the family of God. And I tell you what, all those that know of that love, they love one another. We've been studying on Wednesday night uh, the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 13, our Lord Jesus Christ, he made this statement. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How are they going to know we're his disciples? We keep the Ten Commandments. No. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. Who? Those who believe and have this same hope. Not the world. because I know it can't be the world because John said what? In another epistle, love not the world, neither the things that are of the world. All that's in the world, lust flesh, lust eyes, pride of life, are not of the Father of the world. God help us to be those that truly have the little constraining love of Christ in our hearts and our minds and our soul and in our understanding. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. I appreciate your presence. Lord bless you and keep you until we see you next Lord's Day. Donald, if you would, dismiss us, please, sir. Mm-hmm.